John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, by, uh, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The word of the Lord. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> no response. You guys doing okay? All right, there, there we go. Uh, my name is Jake. It's good to be with you today. Pastor Steve is uh, teaching and preaching uh, with some brothers and sisters in central Illinois today. So he'll be back next week. I'm very excited for this passage because uh, of the agrarian nature of it. Um, I've often thought that if I were to do my life over again, I might not choose the professions that I have chosen thus far, but I would go back and be a gentleman farmer. Um, my wife often reminds me I do not have the skills nor the character to be a successful farmer, but I often think that it sounds like a, a, a very delightful way to live life. So I'm excited to talk about something that has an agrarian flavor today. Um, we've been in a series called The Invitation, um, sitting down at the table of grace. And thus far, we've been talking about the invitation of, of Christ uh, to partake in grace. And so that means he's inviting us out of our old ways that are leading to destruction and judgment, and he's inviting us into life. Uh, we've talked about how he's inviting us into a mission. God has uh, ordained that the church would take the gospel to the entire world, and he's inviting us to take part in that. And today, um, we're going to talk about his invitation to actually be in a relationship with God. Uh, we are invited to sit at the table. God has a feast prepared, and he's inviting us to take part in it with him as friends, as sons, as daughters. He's inviting us to the family table to have a relationship with him. And specifically today, we're going to talk a lot about prayer. Um, prayer is not a strength of mine, probably not a strength of most of you. It doesn't seem to be uh, something that, that people are, yes, I've, I'm a very good prayer. Um, people aren't often like that. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about uh, prayer uh, as it relates to this passage. Now, just to give you a little context for where we're at in the scriptures, uh, right before the passage we just read, Jesus just had the Last Supper. Uh, he just had a Passover meal with his disciples, and he's been teaching them. He's been, uh, I love the way it plays out because he says all this crazy stuff to them, and then it kind of ends abruptly right before this. So he's got them all in a room. They, they have the Passover meal, and he's like, all right, guys, uh, one of you is going to betray me, and then I'm going to die, but then I'm going to come back to life. And then after I come back to life, I'm going to go away again, but that's going to be good for you because my spirit's going to come back and it's going to be with you for all time. Cool? Okay, let's go. And then like they just take off. It's such an abrupt ending. It's weird. Uh, but after that, it, this is where the conversation is taking place. They are walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to be betrayed and eventually murdered. And so they are, he is on the way right now to his demise. And uh, he's still teaching the disciples. And so I like to imagine that they're walking outside and he just sees a vineyard or a vine. And he's like, oh, I 
am the true vine. Um, so that's, a, that's how he begins this conversation. He just says, I am the true vine. And so I read that, and I'm like, okay, as opposed to what? The false vine? And the answer is yes. Now, when he talks about a vine, uh, the disciples, this is not in unfamiliar language to them. They have a frame of reference for, for the vine as a metaphor. All throughout the Old Testament, the vine is a metaphor for Israel. It's a metaphor for God's people. And so we see this, uh, it talks about how God uh, chose Israel as his, his special people in Psalm 80. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So he's saying, uh, I took my people, Israel, and I, I saved them out of slavery and I took them and planted them in this special promised land that I gave to them. And, and what he wanted was to plant his people there. And for just like a vine grows and expands, he wanted his people to grow and expand. He wanted them to take his mercy and his goodness to exemplify his character. And he wanted to take his glory to the entire world through them. That was the call. So he's like, I'm going to plant my people. They're going to take my mercy and my goodness out to all the peoples uh, and spread my fame and renown. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the way it happened. Israel did not trust and obey God. Uh, they, they actually even took his blessings that he gave, and he gave them all these blessings and all these resources. To, to, he gave them his law so that they would know how to live. He gave them blessings and resources to take this message to the world, but what they ended up doing was they took the blessings and used them to worship idols. They, they did not trust and obey him. They earned for themselves only judgment and destruction because every time he gave them something, they squandered it on themselves. They rebelled against him. They grieved God. And as God's talking about this, about how Israel is, is kind of failing at what he's called them to do, he, he's still using the metaphor of a vine. Let's, he does it several places in the Bible. Let's just look at Isaiah 5. That's one of them. It says, He dug the vineyard and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. This is saying he, he planted Israel as a people in the promised land. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. He wanted them to yield fruit, to go out and to spread his message. But it yielded wild grapes. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And by wild grapes, he's saying, I gave them all these blessings so that they would be fruitful, so that they would spread my righteousness. But what they did was they just worshipped idols. That's what wild grapes mean. means. They, they used my blessings to just worship other gods. They failed. He looked for them to bear the good fruit of righteousness and obedience, but they only used his blessings to produce the sour fruit of sin and rebellion and idolatry. So now Jesus is talking about the vine, and this is kind of the frame of reference that the, the disciples have for a vine when they hear him talk about this. The vine is a disappointment. The vine is a metaphor for all the ways that they have failed. The vine is judgment uh, the vine is guilt for them. And so it's kind of in, in that frame of reference that Jesus comes in and says, listen, I am the true vine. And what he's saying right there is he is the redemption of the disappointment. In every way that the people of Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Now they, where, where Israel failed to trust God and obey his commandments, Jesus perfectly trusted God and obeyed every commandment. Where Israel failed to take the message of God's goodness and mercy, where they failed to exemplify God's character to the world, Jesus perfectly represented God. He was the exact image of God. He was God wrapped in flesh and exemplified God's character perfectly. Where Israel earned only judgment and destruction, Jesus, by his perfect life, earned favor 
and blessing from God. Jesus is the redemption of the disappointment. And friends, we who are in this room today, we are just like Israel. God has planted us. He's planted you in your jobs. He's planted you in your communities. He's planted you in your families. And he has asked the same of you that he asked of Israel. He said, trust me, obey me, and take my goodness, my mercy, my character, and exemplify it to the people around you. But much like Israel, we are failures. We haven't done it. We don't trust and obey God perfectly. We don't exemplify his character very well. We're pretty self-centered. We're pretty prideful. We're looking out for us. We have done wrong. We are as much of failures as Israel. But thank God, Jesus is our true vine as well. He is not just the redemption for Israel's disappointment. He is, he is the redemption of the disappointment that is us. In every way that we have done wrong, he has done right. So it's, it's kind of with this frame of reference that we walk into the rest of the passage. Um, so Jesus is saying that Israel and we are rebellious, we're weak, we're guilty, but he is faithful and righteous. So what does he want us to do about it? There's a discrepancy here. There's, there's a division here. What are we supposed to do about it? And he says it a million times in the rest of the passage. He says he wants us to abide in him. Now, what does abide mean? Kind of a weird word we don't use very often. Some of you who are uh, fans of the cult classic, The Big Lebowski, know that the dude abides. But even then, you don't exactly know what maybe abide means. It means to reside, to stay, to dwell, to sink into, to plant your roots. And so when Jesus is saying, abide in me and I'll abide in you, what he's saying is he wants us to sink into him. He wants us to plant our roots in him, to stay with him, to live with him. And he's going to do the same with us. He's going to sink into us. He's planting his roots in us. He's committing to us. Look at verse 4 in our passage. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does that mean to to be united with Christ in this way, to be fused with him, to be sunk into him, living with him, abiding in him. He wants us to be abiding in him the way a branch abides with a vine. So that's, it's biologically connected, right? A branch and a vine. It's, it's fused together. There is sustenance and life that go between them. He wants us to, to be that fused to him. He wants to provide us life and sustenance. Now, there's other places in the Bible, this is one metaphor for being united with Christ, this branch and vine. Other places in the Bible talk about being united with Christ as like a marriage, like a husband and a wife are united. Same way, uh, a vine and a branch are biologically united together. A husband and a wife are biologically united together. The Bible says uh, very poetically that the two become one flesh. But a, a husband and a wife, it's not just sex, right? They're not just sharing bodies, they're sharing everything. A husband and a wife share everything they have. And that, that means assets and debts. That means joys and sorrows. They share everything. Quick example, when my wife and I got married, she had just bought a new car, right? It was a new Mazda. And I know, I know it's not like a, a power car or anything, but I've never owned a new car in my life. And so uh, it was pretty sweet to just like have this new car that she had. Um, it, it was very clean on the inside. It was sleek. It had this deal where uh, I could uh, plug in my iPhone and play an entire music library instead of carrying around a book full of CDs like it's 1994. 
it was, it was pretty incredible. All of a sudden, she's like, we get married. She's like, you can drive my car anytime now. What's mine is yours. It's your car now too. And I'm like, this is great. Um, now, that's what she brought to the marriage. What I brought to the marriage was a 2004 Chevy Malibu hatchback. Uh, there were a bunch of dents in the side, and uh, there was coffee stains all over the front seat where I had just not really cared and had put down a cup and forgot it was there and then took a turn, and there's coffee everywhere all of a sudden. Um, I had put a, uh, an air freshener in there, and the sun had melted it onto the dashboard. <laughs> it is, so it's just like gnarly, plastic, metally. It's, it was weird. Um, and like the seats, I, I would use it to, to haul music gear. So I would fold the seats forward, and all of a sudden there's all this space to hold gear. But then the levers that fold the seats broke off. And so if I ever wanted to get them back in an upright position, I had this plumber's wrench I carried around with me. And I would like tighten it as much as I could on the nub that was left of the lever and pull up and hope that I could get a catch. And, it, and the seat would come back up. I mean, classy stuff going on in this car, clearly. I will say, it did have a moonroof that was over just the back seat. hey <laughs> Let you take that as you will. Uh, so, so I bring this into the marriage, and I'm like, what's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. I'll drive your car, and anytime you want, you can drive mine. And she's like, no, <laughs> I don't want yours. So m- much like, like our cars and our marriage, this is the way we are with Christ, actually. What does he bring to our union? What does he bring to our marriage to him? Our, our union with him that is intimate, that is that is biological, that is spiritual, that is, what does he bring? He brings forgiveness of sins. He brings his perfect righteousness. He brings holiness. He brings peace. He brings assurance, joy, satisfaction. That's what Christ brings to our union with him. And what do we bring? We bring a broken Malibu. We bring our sin, our fears, our judgment, our anxieties, our burdens. And thank God he took them on as a faithful husband would. He took on all of, all of the, the failures that we are, and he said, they're mine now. And all the goodness that belongs to him, he says, it's all yours now. That's the way our union with Christ works. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Friends, by, by his birth and death, he took your weak and tempted nature, and he became sin on your behalf so that he could be one with you. And by our deaths to our old ways, by our rebirths in Christ, we get to partake of his divine holiness, his righteousness, his favor and blessings from God. That's the union he wants us to abide in. He's saying, sink into that. Dwell like that. Plant roots like that. That's what you're getting yourself into when you abide with Christ. So I talked about how uh, we're going to talk about prayer today. How does this affect the way we pray? Well, some of you don't pray very often because you feel like God probably doesn't care about what you have to say. Or more accurately, maybe you feel like you're unworthy to go before God. And in a way, you're right. You really have no business being before God in and of yourself. We see Isaiah, uh, the prophet, standing before God uh, in the scriptures, and he just hits his knees and cries out in terror and sorrow because he is so unclean and guilty. That's what we would be like coming before God in and of ourselves. But because we are united with Christ, we get his blessings. And so God looks upon him and sees righteousness, sees his son, sees favor, sees sees perfect holiness. Christ doesn't fall to his knees in terror and sorrow before God like we would. He stands before a loving father. And because we're united with him, so can we. How wonderful. 
he even pushes it beyond that. He says that we're, we're, so, we're so full of failure that we don't even know how to pray. We're just stammering fools. And yet, in 1 John 2, it says that Jesus is, is praying on our behalf. It says that like the, the accuser, Satan, is constantly accusing us for our, our sin and our failure. And yet Jesus stands before God and says, Father, don't listen to the accuser. They belong with me. They're united with me. <laughs> and whatever is accused... I, I will take it upon myself on the cross. And so he protects us before God. He speaks on our behalf as we're being accused by Satan. It also says in Romans 8 and 9, uh, we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. We're fools. We don't get it. And so we pray these weird prayers that we don't even know what we're saying, and yet Christ's Holy Spirit goes and intercedes on our behalf and turns that into something beautiful, asking God for our good. How good does it get? This union is beautiful, and we are, we are benefiting from it in every way. Now, secondly, uh, our union with Christ doesn't just allow us to speak to God. It allows God to speak back to us. Now, some of you don't pray because it's boring to you, right? You have this list of things that you want to say or you think you should say, and you pray to God, and then you don't really expect a response, and you just check the spiritual checkbox. All right, prayed today but it's boring to you. You don't actually see any power in it, right? But prayer isn't supposed to be a monologue. Prayer is a dialogue. It's a conversation. When we're talking about this union with Christ, we're talking about a union with the creator of the universe who wants to speak back to us when we speak to him. So think about your most intimate relationships. Who is, who is it that you are closest with? Maybe a parent, maybe a spouse, maybe a best friend. Who are you closest with? So think about your conversations with them. Do you just walk up to them, like say this list of things you think you need to say to them and then walk away? No. You expect to have a conversation, right? You expect to have a dialogue, a back and forth. And not only that, you expect to have a back and forth about the things that matter most in your life, right? Nothing's off limits. You talk about your hopes, your fears, your anxieties, your dreams. That's what your closest relationships are like. And this is what Christ is inviting us into with the Almighty God. He's saying... You can come to him with your failures and he will, he will give you forgiveness. You can come to him with your burdens, he will give you rest. You can come with your fears, he will give you assurance. He wants for this to be a dialogue where we talk to God and God talks back. Where we ask him, God, what do you want of us? What do you want of me? What do you want of our community? How should I, how should I address this neighbor that's just making me crazy? How do you want me to proclaim the gospel of this person uh, that I know and who isn't a believer? You can ask those questions of God and expect for him to answer you, for him to, to give you uh, the power, the assurance to go forth. Thank God we have a union with Christ that allows us to be able to speak freely, freely with God and for him to speak back. Now, as we look at the way we're united with Christ and we abide in him, um, this passage also really makes a distinction here, and it wants to be really clear, so I want to be really clear. It is very clearly saying, Christ is the vine, and we are the branches. Like, very clear distinction. Now, the problem with that is we are very tempted to think that we are the vine. We're tempted to think that we're the important one. We, we center our lives around ourselves, we like to think that we can live on our own, that we can sustain ourselves, and then we have branches, right? So 
we really, we really don't get this. Um, Christ is the life-giving one, and yet we think that we need to find life in other places. And so what, what we end up doing is saying, okay, I'm the vine, and then I have this branch uh, of family. And I think that family's going to provide me some joy and satisfaction, right? So that's a branch off my vine. And then I have this other branch that's like my job, and I think I'm going to find some satisfaction there. I have this other branch that's entertainment, and I think that's going to give me some joy. This other branch that's Christ, and I think he's going to give me some satisfaction. And so we, we think that we're the, the center, we are the vine, and we have all these branches that we think are going to fulfill us. But what Christ is very clearly saying here is that I am the vine, and you are the branch. If you try to do it any other way, you are going to wither and die. No matter how many offshoot branches you think you're going to have that are feeding into you, if you are not fed into me, you are going to die. And I I get it. It seems seems very much like these things should make us happy. Family, entertainment, uh, church, job, right? But he is making a clear distinction that uh, in the end, those things don't give you life. Those things do not sustain you. Only being connected to the vine sustains you because he's the source of life. And so if you do it any other way, you will have no life. You will wither and die. So why does this matter when it comes to prayer? Uh, well, because I think some of us don't pray because in our heart of hearts, we don't think we need to. Because if you're the vine, what's there to pray about? You don't need anything. You think you've got it under control, right? I am the one that's managing all my branches and they're feeding me with uh, what I think is going to bring joy and satisfaction. I've got this under control. So why would you pray if you've got it under control? At best, you might throw up a prayer asking God for something that uh, is unrelated to him that won't actually bring you closer to him. You're like, God, I would really like this new car. Can I please have this new car? And And if you're trying to find satisfaction and joy in anything apart from him, he's going to say no, all right? But when you realize that you're just a branch, you're not a vine, you can't sustain yourself. When you realize that you're just a branch, you will be driven to prayer. There will be no other way for you to live when you realize that. Because if you are a branch and every bit of your sustenance, your joy comes from somewhere else, you will find yourself having to ask for it. You will pray to God and actually say, I need to ask for my daily bread. I need to ask him to give me the things I need. Because only he provides life and sustenance. I need to ask him to give me joy. I need to to confess my sins to him so that he will give me the forgiveness and the mercy I need. I need to ask him to give me faithfulness because I don't seem to have it and I can't seem to find it myself. I'm going to have to ask him to give it to me. I'm going to have to beg him to show me how trustworthy he is so that I will be more and more united with Christ. Once you see your deep and utter need, you realize you can't be a vine in and of yourself. You have to be connected to Jesus, the true source of life. And that will drive you to prayer. So our passage takes us even like a step further. Um, It really wants us to see what the point of all this is. So he's saying, I want you to abide in me, and I want you to to be fused with me, uh, united with me. But what's the point of it all? What's the point of the prayer? What's the point of the abiding? And look at verse 7 and 8. He tells us exactly what the point is tells us what the end result should be. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So that's the answer. The end result should be that God is glorified and we bear fruit 
And in this case, fruit means works of righteousness, the character of God. He wants us to look more and more like Christ. Now, it's easy to get hung up on the sentence right before that, because read that real quick. It, it sounds pretty incredulous. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I get hung up on that little last part. And I'm like, God, I know that I prayed for a pool full of Cadbury cream and it did not happen. What's the deal? Your word says that if I pray for whatever I wish, you'll do it. Come on, man. Now, the problem is there's a qualifier there. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, only then will you get whatever you want if, if you ask what you wish. And why is that? Well, it's because he is wanting us to abide in him to become more like him, right? And so he is asking us to pray for this, this end result. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He wants us to pray to God that God would be glorified and that we would bear much fruit. That's what he wants. And the more that we abide in him, the more that what he wants becomes what we want. Does that make sense? So if, you're, if, if what you want is apart from him, then he's not going to give it to you. But if what you want is abiding in him, then your desires will naturally become his desires and you will pray for your desires and he will say, yes, those desires match mine exactly. I will give you all of them. Does that make sense? And in the end, he wants us to bear fruit. What does that mean? It's a very natural progression. A healthy vine will produce a healthy branch that will produce healthy fruit. And by that, he means by bearing fruit, there's a way of living and acting, of believing, of having faith that is the way humanity was always meant to be. It's the perfect way that God has ordained for us to live. It's called righteousness. And Jesus lived that way perfectly. Jesus was fully righteous. In every way, he, he bore the fruit that he was supposed to bear. And, and Paul, uh, when he's writing about this in Galatians 5, he even calls it the fruit of the Spirit. This is the way you should look like. This is, this is the way you should act. This is the way you should be. And he, he lists it out. He says, you should be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you're actually abiding in Christ, you will start to have more and more of those things. You will start to look more and more like that you will start to bear more and more fruit. Now, in the end, God is going to restore his creation and his people, and that will be the only way we can act. Everyone that is left will be full of uh, gentleness, will be full of self-control, will be full of kindness and love. How wonderful will that be when everyone is exactly the way they were meant to be? It'll be glorious. But until then, we're still in the middle of a transition, in the middle of a process. Jesus has saved us, and he's shown us what, it, what he's calling us to, right? He is saying, I want you to be all these fruits of the Spirit. I want you to bear fruit, but you can't do it unless you are empowered by grace. We're not all the way there yet. The, the creation is not restored yet. We're still tempted to go off on our own. We're still tempted to produce sour fruit, legalism, self-centeredness, pride, idolatry. We're still tempted by those things. And so what he's asking is for, uh, for us now to pray about those things. This is an invitation for us to be deep in prayer. Some of you don't pray because it feels like God never answers your prayers. You feel like, what's the point? But maybe that's because you're praying for the wrong things. When you are praying for the things that God desires, when you are praying that he would make your desires and his uh, desires match up, when you are praying to be more like Christ, 
when you are praying to produce more fruit, to be more righteous, to be more merciful, to be more full of, of gentleness and self-control and love and kindness. Those things he will always answer with a resounding yes. If you pray for them, he will say, I will shower those upon you. Yes. So friends, pray for the right things. Pray for the things that are actually going to matter forever. Pray for the things that are going to bring you real deep-seated joy and satisfaction. Pray to be fruitful in the fruit of the Spirit. And he will always answer yes. Now, as we talk about this, um, this passage kind of also gives a warning, and I feel like it's my duty to talk about that. So what I'm saying right now is that you should be praying to be more like Christ. You should be praying to, uh, to bear more fruit, to bear more righteousness and obedience and faith. But God might not answer that in the way that you would necessarily want. So let's look at verse 2. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So you read that and you're like, wait a second. There's a branch that's obviously a good branch because it's bearing fruit, but he's still going to prune it? Why is that? And uh, I'm, I'm a very amateur gardener, but I can tell you from even doing just a, a few rose bushes, there are... The plant can grow in certain ways that will take it on little tangents, and it's not going to be healthy for the plant long term, right? You're like, oh, look at all these brand new flowers. Look at all this brand new fruit. This must be very healthy. But in the long term, that little offshoot is going to end up doing detriment to the entire plant. And so you need to prune it. You need to shape it. You need to guide it for the long term health of the plant. And so this is what God is saying. He's saying, you may be bearing fruit, you may be a good branch that's connected to the vine, but I'm still going to have to prune you for your long-term good, for your long-term health. Now, I read that, and I think to myself, whoa, 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 wait a second. Doesn't pruning involve a knife? Isn't there cutting involved? Doesn't that mean that the branch has to be wounded, that there will be pain? And the answer is yes. Yes, there will be pain. When God is pruning you, real parts of you will be cut off that you hold very dear. Accomplishments that you hold dear, people, possessions that you try to look to for satisfaction, he will cut those things off. All the wild branches and sour fruit of your legalism and your anxiety must go. All of the old ways of your life in which you are the center of the universe, in which you're full of pride and sin, you will have to die to those every single day, Paul says. You will die to the ways of sin and pride and idolatry. And it will be painful. John Newton, who, uh, he was the man who wrote the song Amazing Grace. He wrote one of my favorite hymns. It's called I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. Um, and, and this hymn is about exactly what we're talking about. I want to read you the lyrics. He writes, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and in love and in every grace and might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. See, he's, he's asking to be more like Christ. He's acting, asking to be uh, deeper involved in grace. He's actually asking to sink his roots into righteousness. He says, It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, God, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that has almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power would subdue my sins and give me rest. He's saying, I prayed to be more like Christ, and I was hoping that God would just kill the power of sin immediately, and it would be over with. But he goes on. He said, but instead of that, 
He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy servant to death? Well, it's in this way, the Lord replied, that I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and to break your schemes of earthly joy so that you might find your all in me. The Lord is going to break our schemes for earthly joy. He's going to break the ways in which we are going to try to find satisfaction apart from him. And it's going to feel like the powers of hell are assaulting your soul in every part sometimes. It's going to be painful. You're going to find yourself in the midst of despair. And I know that's scary. I'm specifically telling you right now that this passage is asking you to pray for something that you know will be hurt, hurtful. It is asking you to pray for things that you know are going to be painful. But it's asking you to pray for things that are going to be for your long-term good. And friends, some of you don't pray because you're scared of what God is going to tell you. You don't pray because you're scared that he's going to tell you something that's painful. Or maybe he's already told you something painful and now you just don't want to pray because you don't want to deal with it. But friends, that's the perfect invitation to pray. When we are in the midst of despair, of confusion, of hurt, that is when God is the most full of assurance and comfort. That is when we can be the most dependent on him, when we can go to him with prayer unceasingly so that we can have strength, so that we can be reassured. Friends, this call to be pruned drives you to complete dependence on him and to trust him through the pain of your sanctification. N.T. Wright, a theologian, says it this way. He says, The vine dresser is never closer to the vine, taking more thought over its long-term health and productivity than when he has the knife in his hand. Friends, the Lord is not a lumberjack causing you unnecessary pain, lopping off branches here and there. He's deliberate. He's careful. He's tender. He's pruning you only as much as necessary and not more. He's not causing you unnecessary or undue pain. And he never causes more pain than his grace is sufficient for. But in the midst of it, he's calling you to be humble and dependent, to trust him and to talk with him, to pray to him. Friends, he's going to break down our ways of sin so that he can rebuild us in the ways of grace. And friends, verse 11 He's, he's saying, he's, he's telling us to look to the end. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He is telling us that this temporary pain is for our eternal joy. Um, when I was a, a kid, every single summer, my family would drive out to Colorado. And uh, we had family that lived in Vail, and we would go out there, have a great time for a couple weeks. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever driven through Kansas, but it is the worst, just the worst. I don't, there's nothing for miles except for fields. The road just goes straight. Uh, half the time, there's no radio stations to be had. Uh, there, I don't even know if they have light poles out there. I don't know. There's nothing for miles. It is boring. But then all of a sudden, when you're in eastern Colorado, I can remember this. Someone would say, look, and we would all look out the front window, and we would see on the horizon this faint view of mountains. In this passage, God is telling you to, uh, 
to lift your head to look on the horizon. You may be going through the, the pain, maybe the monotony, maybe the despair of life right now, and it's hard to look up. It's hard to not be completely overwhelmed and subdued by it. But he is saying, please, lift your eyes and look on the horizon. There is eternal joy ahead. And this pain that you're in right now will all be worth it. He's asking you to pray for sight. Lord, help me to see how this is going to bring eternal joy. Lord, help me to see that in the end, you are good, you are faithful, you are true, and this will all be worth it. He's asking you to pray. Even in the midst of your possible self-absorption, your self-pity, your disobedience, he's asking you to pray for sight. So guys, this is somewhat difficult stuff that we're talking about. We're talking about prayer for pain in ways. We're, we're talking about prayer for holiness, for joy, for satisfaction. But we're talking about how that's going to bring you hurt initially. We're talking about trust and dependence and faith in God in the midst of it. That's difficult. Now, as we talk about those things, there's, there's only one way to actually succeed in this, actually succeed in abiding in Christ, in depending on him, in trusting him, and obeying him in the midst of pain. There's one way to do it. Now, some of you know right well that you're not attached to the vine. You know that you are not a follower of Christ. You know that you are not a branch that is in any way fused to this vine of Christ. And, and for you, I would, I would ask for you to, to pray to consider this, what we're about to say. And for some of you, you, are, uh, you think that you're attached to the vine? It's quite possible that you're an imposter. You think that you are a branch attached to the vine, but what you really are is uh, you're trying to be a vine in and of yourself. And you are looking to offshoots of your own branch to try and find joy and satisfaction. And you are not really abiding in Christ. Some of you, you know that you are abiding in Christ. You are attached to the vine. You have life through him. And yet, in the midst of this pain, in the midst... Of, uh, of the difficulties of life, you are tempted to separate. You're saying, this hurts too much. I'm out. I've got to get out of here. You're abiding, but you're tempted. The one way for all three of those, all three of you, to succeed in this, to abide, to find joy, to find satisfaction, the one answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one answer is the good news that he has taken your sin upon himself. For you who are not attached to the vine, consider it. Consider the fact that you are a failure and you need someone else to come in on your behalf and to save you. For those of you who are imposters, you're not actually attached to the vine, but you think you are, consider that. Am I an imposter? And, and even that question in and of itself shows that, that if you are asking that, grace is coming upon you to have you question whether or not you're attached to the vine, and pray. Pray that God would change your heart, would show you the ways in which you're trying to be independent, show you the ways in which you're being idolatrous. And if you are tempted, pray that through the gospel, you would be empowered, you would be strengthened, you would be reassured, and your faith would be deepened. And friends, the gospel is this. Look in verse 2. It says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And in verse 6, it says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and they're thrown into a fire and they're burned. Friends, that's us. That was us. We are the withering, dying branches that bore no fruit. What we deserve is to be cut off and taken away 
and destroyed. But I want you to hear this description of Jesus from Isaiah 53. It says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of his people? Don't you see? We deserve to be cut off, taken away, and destroyed. But this passage in Isaiah says that Christ was cut off from life. He was taken away, and he was destroyed. Why? For the transgressions of his people, for our sin, for our failure. In every way, once again, he is the redemption of the disappointment that is us. We have sinned and rebelled against God. We have not trusted him. We have not abided in him. We have not obeyed him. And yet, all of that failure, all of that sin, all of that judgment was put on Christ. The vine was killed so that we, the branches, might have life. And then the vine was resurrected, came back to life so that he could give us joy, satisfaction, and sustenance, life eternal forever. He took the punishment so that we could be forgiven and that we could have a relationship with God again. Friends, today we need to know this, to believe this, to let it sink deep into our hearts and to affect us. So we're going to put some reflection questions on the screen. As we talk about prayer, this is the time right now. Pray. Come to God with your fears, your anxieties. Ask Him questions. Ask for Him to show you the ways of grace. Ask for Him to change your heart. Look through these reflection questions and take some time to pray with God. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. Then we're going to take communion and we're going to celebrate the grace that is offered to us through Christ. So friends, let's pray. Jesus, help us. We are completely and utterly unable to do anything apart from you. Show us where we're trying so that we can repent and we can find life in you again. Jesus, help us to trust you, to obey you, to find real joy in you instead of trying to find joy in other places. Christ, give us reassurance. Give us strength when, uh, when your pruning shear causes us pain. And help us to believe, to see on the horizon that there is eternal glory ahead and that this is for our long-term good. Lord, we need your help. Please speak to our hearts today and lead us toward whatever grace we need to hear in order to believe and trust you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray.